This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is a crowd podcast. Stop. Don't go any further, Tom. Katie, we've got actual real social media. You can follow us at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. We'll wait for you. And we're here for you. Harry Truman, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, of course, Television, Square Eyes. Well, hello again to you. We are on episode 11 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is today, all dictated by the crazy imagination of Billy Joel and his ability to make massive global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce. Katie Puckrick is here as always. Katie, yes, she is. arm in arm, we skip onwards. We skip. Uh, arm in arm, uh, maybe we swing our arms in a carefree fashion. Certainly our knees are bobbing high, almost bumping the bottom of our chin. Yes, they are. Uh, we just don't know when to stop. And neither does Billy, and that's the problem, is that we just barrel down the avenue. Today we're talking about television. Television. This is one of Billy's ones, Katie, where, yes, I'm glad he stuck it in there, but I'm also sort of thinking, do us a favor, Billy, just specify a bit more precisely which aspects of this massive topic you'd like us to discuss. It's a little bit of like reading tea leaves, with We Didn't Start the Fire because you have a huge topic, like Red China, for instance. Massive. Biggin. Uh, and you just realize, okay, let us put the eyes of Billy into our bonds and see it through his vision and his vista. And the way I approach it is what was the vibe at the time. I mean, you know, when television first came on the scene or when he mentions it in the song. So when does it occur in the song? Like 1950? Yeah. It's it's early 50s, isn't it? Yeah, so he is, at that point, he's five or six. He's probably on Long Island by then. Yeah. You'd think that a family have either got a TV or they're one of those American families who are looking at the other American families with TVs again. Fancy a bit of that. Yes. Yeah. So he, yeah. So the thing about television is, you know, it's not even the question of where do we start. We know where to start. Start at the beginning, but where do we end talking about it? But I think I think we're safe if we just kind of stick to uh, why was it so gosh darn exciting? You know, people felt like they were living in the future if they had a television. And I can only imagine. I mean, I, I was a child of the '60s, and I was quite taken with television when it came to programs like Batman. The original Batman, and also the monkeys. Oh, what a show! 
Yeah, so those were two big formative influences for me. Favorite monkey? Um, well, at the time, Mickey Dolenz, because mm. of his smile. Mm. I always was drawn to a man with a smile. Sadly, that's also why I was drawn to Richard Nixon. <laughs> that's a pre- presidential hopeful in 1968 when I was a child. Um, yeah, I'm very easily won over. How about you, favorite monkey? Probably Dave Jones, I think, because he was the English one. He was also yeah. a jockey later in his life, which is a very weird thing. Later in life? Yeah, he was. Yeah, I think so. And weird. he had that sort of boyish charm, didn't he? And what about you? What are your early television memories? The television as the babysitter, I think, Katie. Yeah. As being one of five kids, the TV was something that just parked you there while your mum was doing all the horrendous tasks that you have to do as a mother of five kids. Yuck. Cleaning, feeding, cleaning, feeding, cleaning, feeding. So the television was there, and then I think, right, I remember so the first TV we had was a black and white one, and when I try and tell my kids that you had to tune in with a dial on the side and the wavy static was there, they're living in a world of everything on demand. They, they look at me like I'm a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. You're, it, it's like you, you have to practically rebuild the television every time you go to turn it on. Yeah. I used to something. watch snooker in black and white, and it was fine. I got it. Oh, that's right. You have to look at those little colored balls yeah. being bonging around. Yeah. My goodness. Okay, so um, as you can tell, listeners, if you were just stuck with me and Tom (laughs) (laughs) and just spitballing here, nobody would be any wiser after 40 minutes of this nonsense, which is why we have wheeled in an expert. I am delighted to present to you Mr. Dick Fiddy. He is the archive TV programmer at the British Film Institute and also a TV writer Of note, he's written for TV comedies such as Spitting Image and Not the Nine O'Clock News. Welcome, Dick Fiddy. Hello there. Hello. It's interesting what you were saying about television as a babysitter because I suspect um, for Billy Joel that was his his way into television. When you look at where he puts it in the song, it is that period when uh, Saturday morning cartoons or the Saturday morning um, American TV shows were there specifically to give mothers a break. And so you'd plonk your children in front of the TV. The Mickey Mouse Playhouse will be on or something like that. Later on in life, you would have the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. But in, in those early 50s, there'd have been something for him to keep him amused whilst the housework got done. What is a TV looking like then when Billy's a kid? <laughs> like Because they looked almost like beautiful pieces of furniture, some of those early ones, didn't they? It depends how affluent you were. Um, TVs ranged um, throughout the 50s from about $150 to over $1,000. Um, but very many of them, you're right, they they looked like beautiful bits of furniture. But there was some sort of idea that you didn't want to put the d- TV on display when you weren't watching it. So very, very often they had, um, they were like cupboards, they had doors in front of them that you open. So, you know, when you actually watch the TV, opening the doors was like opening the curtains to the theatre. This was, you know, <laughs> this, was a, this was the prelude to your night's entertainment. And and the more expensive they, they were, the bigger the screen was. So normal screens would be between 14 and 17. 17 inches, but if you were uh, if you were wealthy, you could push that up to 21, 24, eventually 26 inch TVs. Which would, but they had been huge cabinets. The tube that would have to accommodate a screen that side was massive. So these were big bits of furniture. They used sort of mahogany or mahogany like finishes to make them look elegant and to and to fit them into most households. And of course, that's where over the years, 
the the front room itself or the, the, the television watching room itself was where the furniture subtly was moved around to face the TV. So it actually started affecting the shape of how households looked, how, how lounges looked, you know, because there was something now to focus on, whereas before you were probably in a circle, you know, so you could actually have conversations. Yeah, we don't need conversations anymore. We have television. And of course, if the radio was the predecessor, but it didn't matter where the radio was. You didn't have to look at it. Sure. So the, the radio could be anywhere without affecting the layout of the furniture. Dick, I want to get a sense of how totally space age it was to have, I guess, what amounted to a radio with pictures in the home. Like, it, it just must have been like living in the future. It was. I mean, radio had been like that when it had come around in the 20s, suddenly giving you this microphone onto the world, this, this, this ear onto the world. When television came along, adding pictures to the mix, it was looked upon as, as something futuristic. It had been um, predicted in films, you know, it had been the, the world's fairs had often had television as part of the central idea of looking at the inventions of the future. By 1949, there was probably a million sets, maybe in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, by 1959, there was 40 million, you know. So there was, it, there was a huge take-up and it became fantastically important. It was also, television was the way that all the other revolutions that were going on at the time were brought into the home. You know, you look at presidential debates and things like that. They were on television. So suddenly politics became a lot more personal in the home. Right. And the politicians understanding this, uh, although struggling for a while, soon came to the idea that they had to be shorter and sharper. They had to get their message across in, in like sound bites. Otherwise, you'd lose the audience. Yeah, it had, you had to think like an ad man. Yeah, you had to think very much like that, especially in the US. And the, there's... You know, if you look at the, the Vietnam War, that became a television war, you know, the, the idea that those pictures came in through the television. So television was a, sort of a twin-pronged attack. Not only was it there as an entertainment centre, and not only was it there to bring in news, but it was also there to filter the other revolutions that were happening in society into your home. I was interested to learn that... Uh Television was simultaneously being invented and developed around the world in Russia, in uh, America, in Great Britain, Scotland. Sure. It's a truly uh, international invention. Every country thinks they invented it, (laughs) you know. uh, But, yeah, it wasn't – there was no – you can't point the finger at one person. But as an invention itself, if you look at all the technology put together, it's truly international. I'm very tickled by the misconceptions about television in the home. People were really (laughs) nervous about it, Tom, because uh, they thought – they could be watched through the television, which Whoa. which probably isn't so far off from having Alexa or Siri, those kind of yeah. things. That's us being watched now. But um, some people thought you had to watch it in the dark because it would make you go blind otherwise. I, I remember um, my grandmother would turn off the TV if there was a thunderstorm outside. Yeah, I think my mum still does that. And she would cover it with a cloth at night. Oh, like a, like a budgie cage. <laughs> like, like a, a parrot. Cage, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, those... If I don't know if they're misconceptions, but the wariness that people had about television was, I mean, it was a big piece of new equipment to have in your own. There was something futuristic about it. Nobody really understood how it worked. It was, it was it, you know, you could don't. just about understand how radio worked, you know, but television seemed a step too far, you know. I'm curious about um, the fears of television's effect on society, especially on you, Tom, because I know you're very suggestible. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, how long before the arbiters of public morality showed up to police what was broadcast? There's all sorts of um, reasons why 
television had that effect and, and had its detractors right from the word go. There was a lot of fear, obviously, from the cinema industry who saw television as a big threat. So oh, yeah. before television um, takes hold, there's, there's films about which, um, like the television spies and murder by television, in which television is like <gasps> the, the villain. Oh, it's in propaganda. The, in the piece. Yeah. So there was there were various um subgroups that would write about television, look upon television, and in extreme cases actually bring weight to bear. I was struck by the fact that um, thinking about the BBC television, early BBC television, which was the only network, is that right? Yeah, until 55, yeah. Yeah, in the UK. And and the programming was very middle class, so-called highbrow, so you had plays, you had the ballet, um, classical music. And it meant that everyone, all classes, were exposed to all different kinds of culture. It, it wasn't targeted programming like now. And in a way, it was sort of more democratic. It, it was. It was a, a captive audience. You've got to remember that television, although it's visual, its, it's antecedent isn't cinema, it's radio. Mm-hmm. It's radio and theatre. Um, when television started in in this country, the BBC radio, the BBC ran radio, and then they ran television. So it was had the same ideas, and the things that have been successful on radio, talks, sitcoms, dramas, were just transferred wholesale on the television. When the golden age of live drama was over, when they were moving towards film drama, when the worry was that television was going to kill cinema, a lot of the cinema companies got into making television. Disney started it. Warner Brothers followed very right. soon afterwards. If you can't and, beat them, join them. Yeah. They thought, well, you know, if we're going to lose the outlet of cinema, let's make these film adventure series. We've got all the technology. So the heart of television moved from New York to L.A. And probably the, the biggest single cause of that was Lucille Ball. With I Love Lucy, which was, the, which was made on film be, simply because she refused to move to New York. And um, so they decided that they'd take a cut in the money they were getting and they would film it. So because it was on 35mm film or 60mm, I think it was 35 then actually it would look good and they could show it whenever they liked. And the, the, the originating company said, well... We can do that, but you're going to have to pay for the filming, which was, you know, like two two thousand an episode, more, more, whatever it was. And um, they said, "Well, we'll do that, but we want to take the international rights for it." And they took the international rights for it, and it made them millionaires many times over. <laughs> but because they demonstrated that you didn't have to move to New York, the seeds were sown that you could have a successful TV career on the West Coast. Um, I guess I don't know if Tom, you feel like it was the same here in the UK, but growing up, I always thought of commercials as part of the entertainment. Like sometimes the best bit. Yeah, you sing the jingle, you know, you'd recite the slogan, um, you know, you'd use it as a punchline. I think it was to your one. Friends. Of the, it was one of the things in the UK they learned very quickly from America that, that if you made them entertain, we always went for a softer sell than the Americans. There was never any hard sell. You know, buy this now, go out tomorrow. This is you know. <laughs> These are your they, marching they, orders. Yeah, they were they they very much went for comedy. Or they went for a sort of soap opera-like feel. You know, they'd have a family advertising, Daz, you know, so you could see that this woman was there. They had the OXO family, you know. So you had people that you recognised. They were almost like regular TV characters. We also had this odd thing called the TV, the ad mag. 
which is a 15-minute program, like a soap opera, which would be, be full of product placement ideas. Oh. They were outlawed in 63. They ran from 56 to 63. They were outlawed then, but they were incredibly popular. One of them in particular, Jim's Inn, was watched as much as any program. It was like the Coronation Street of its day. And um, What did Jim's Inn do? Well, it was it set in a pub, so people would come in and a guy would, it would be set up just so it was like a normal conversation, although the conversation would be littered with um, references to things. So this guy was saying, I was very happy with these new tyres I just bought for the car outside that drove down here like a dream. And he says, oh, well, let's celebrate. Have a debonet. You know, so they were, they were name-checking all the time. Total product and placement. Then, and then he'd look to the camera and say, debonet is just 14 and 6 now, you know, for... And so, yeah, total product placement. They were very popular. They were outlawed in 63 because... They beginning the ITC or the, the the watchdog for ITV thought that they were blurring the lines between what was entertainment. So some people wouldn't realise that it was just an extended ad. But they were like very much like a shopping channel. If a shopping channel ah. had a plot, to it, you know? <laughs> I think I think the time is ripe for that to come back. They are shopping channels. They with are a plot. hysterical when you watch them now. I'm curious about uh, how color television seeped into our lives, adding that uh, special glow. I mean, Tom, you were saying that you grew up with a black and white television. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, and that wouldn't have been the olden days either. So we got our color TV, I think, 1984. So well, it might have been a little bit later, but that was when they started getting a bit more affordable. Yeah, I mean, o- over in the UK, Colour TV comes in in 1967, but it's only on BBC Two. You have to buy a new set to get it. It's incredibly expensive. It's, the the take-up is quite small. By 69, 69 is the big year for Colour, both ITV and BBC One start to broadcast in Colour, although some programmes are still made in black and white. Come the mid-70s, 75, 76, Colour TV has actually got quite a hold. The reason why colour television got such a hold over here, over in the UK, is because we had the concept of of renting television sets. So you didn't have to, if you couldn't afford to buy this thing, you couldn't rent it. And the great thing about renting is every two or three years, they upgraded your television. It was also cheaper to have a, the black and white TV license was quite a lot cheaper than the colour one, wasn't it? A lot cheaper, yeah. Yeah. Seems weird, doesn't it? Do you remember the first color television program that you watched, Tom, when your family got the color TV? My gran got one first because, you know, if you start with your gran, she's going to be watching a bit more TV. So I remember watching Five Nations Rugby with my gran, Irish gran, and the colors were very vivid because you've got the bright green of the Irish shirt, you've got the bright red of the the Welsh or the, the navy of Scotland, the white of England. So those were very vivid images. I think when I was a kid. I don't remember not having color yeah. television. That, that was always a, a friend of mine, Vanessa. Um, she says that her father finally shelled out for color television when there was going to be a, a new bishop, <laughs> Catholic bishop, being I don't know what the religious terminology is, being duffed in. I don't know what it is. But uh, so apparently there was some sort of fantastic ecclesiastical parade involving a lot of brocade uh, and purple robes. Um, sparkly uh, fabrics and uh, that was the thing that her father found irresistible I don't know why he was such a you know 
fan of suck of ecclesiastical yeah like put the pompery popish pompery but um yeah that was the thing that he found irresistible and that's how it came into her life the early british color shows are when you look at them now the the quality is stunning they're absolutely beautiful colors and you can understand why wimbledon suddenly in color or snooker as you were saying suddenly in color with the green beige and the balls suddenly sport took on a whole new dimension you know it was fantastic let's talk about those television First, because um, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II—that was a, a big to do. Yeah, that was probably the reason why television had such a huge take-up in the UK. Well, it was—it was going well. I mean, we were selling probably 150, 200,000 sets a year by that time. But when the words comes out that the, tele- the coronation is going to be um, televised in that period, six months before, and half a million sets are sold, uh, it's it becomes the first event that's watched more on television than listened to on radio. It's, ah. it's that key moment when um, television is in the ascendancy. Radio still held its own for the next few years because it took TV a few years to find its its feet, and it wasn't. Until ITV came along um, and provided uh, a rival, so the competition made both of them um, better. And equally, uh, the U.S. presidential campaign and uh, in 1952 was was uh, broadcast, and also Eisenhower's inauguration. They say that Kennedy's rise, a lot of it was to do with the fact that he was very telegenic. Yeah. And when he ran against Nixon, um, you know, the close-ups of the two of them, you had the dynamic Kennedy looking very handsome and cool. and, and Chiseled and, and tanned. And Nixon, who sweated a lot anyway, he was, he, he was a natural sweater, I think. Didn't look good, <laughs> one, you know. one of his skills. Yeah, he was sort of, he, he looked shifty. He looked like a second-hand car salesman as opposed to Kennedy, who looked like a dynamic, thrusting statesman, you know. So I, th- I think it's always said that television had a huge, played a huge part in, in Kennedy's rise. Okay, we'll return to this story in a couple of moments. But first, a few adverts. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. Just in this conversation, I'm thinking about what television firsts did I witness. Um, I saw the moon landing in 1969, and I remember being a little put out because it interrupted my Saturday morning cartoons... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I was trying to enjoy in South Bend, Indiana, where I was living at the time, and there was some kind of uh, fuzzy-looking uh, broadcast on some arid landscape of some tin can landing. But, yeah. It was extraordinary. You know, I mean, I think we sort of knew that they were going to go to the moon. The fact that we'd get television pictures back of them doing it, well, that was the that was, the, for me, that was the true technological marvel, yeah. not getting them there. Yeah. The fact that we could get pictures <laughs> back, you know. I mean, that meant, wow, 
You know, this is incredible. I, and I, I was allowed to stay up. It was my 16th birthday. Right. So I was allowed to stay up that night to watch it. because. Oh, the, yeah. What the, time would it have been? Well, they, 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 the moonwalk itself was in the early hours of the morning on the 21st. They landed right. on the 20th of July on the 21st, early hours of the morning. And that's when I was sort of allowed to watch them walk on the moon rather yeah. than just land. And it was just, I remember it as if it was yesterday. And it was an extraordinary achievement. But yeah, at the back of my mind, it was always, how are they getting those pictures back? Not how did they... <laughs> They get them there. Yeah. <laughs> so they've laid a massive cable all the well, way exactly. You know, in my, in, in my fevered imagination, you know, I kept thinking that, you know, because that's what I'm saying. Television is not like other forms, you know. It, it, it's sort of magical in many ways yeah. if you don't understand the technology. So that's, that's technology. an example of an epoch-making event that goes out on TV. But there's also this idea that I've been reading about, Casey, that's definitely during the 50s and the 60s when Billy's growing up, that TV is deliberately trying not to reflect what's really going in the world. This this phrase of that it's a cultural anaesthetic. And maybe this ties in with all the cowboy stuff, that America is in turmoil and is changing fast and a young president is shot dead. And actually, TV is meant to make you forget all that. There was certainly um, there was a, a backlash against television from people that actually thought that, that it was anodyne, that it would... That they, it was sort of an anaesthetic for the people and it would keep them happy whilst whilst murders were happening on the streets. So, it, And the idea that it avoided the, the big su- subjects. I mean, Rod Serling, who tried desperately to write about racism, tried to write about... Well, he did very successfully uh, about uh, prejudice, stereotyping, uh, mob yeah. rule. But what happened is when he, when he wrote... In the Twilight for, Zone. When he wrote for those big um, American landmarks drama series they were getting censored he wrote this thing ah. about the murder of a, a, a black kid and it was changed to the murder of a Jewish boy the, the true story was changed to the murder of a Jewish because boy because you couldn't feel uh, that hot and bothered about a little black kid they getting didn't murdered wanna, they, yeah they were very very worried about the sort of um, impact it would have had so Serling in a throwaway line, said it would be easier if I wrote about these people as if they were Martians, then maybe I could get away with it. So he came up with the idea of the Twilight Zone, taking a fantastical premise, but putting all these, you know, all these cutting edge um, moments looking at American society and very often looking at what was wrong with American society, but garbing it in in a science fiction or fantasy or horror setting and getting away with it because it slipped under the radar. And that's how he managed to get away some of the best best moments of American TV. I mean, talking about firsts, um, those are programs that really break boundaries of what's discussed or shown on television. Like, I'm thinking about, um, I was living in in Britain in 1994 when there was the hoo-ha about the pre-watershed lesbian kiss on Brookside. Mm. Yeah. And that was just considered... Beth Jordash. Yeah, Mm. just beyond the pale. Um, I always think those things are more tabloid-invented um, furores, though, rather than the public. I just think the public, you you know, tends to take those things in its stride a lot more than they want them to. So slow news days, you know, oh, look at what's happening on Brookside. This is terrible. Look at what's happening on EastEnders. This is terrible. Well, you know, so they live off the back of controversy that they invent themselves. I mean, I do accept that. But also, it is interesting that it provides a water cooler moment to discuss trends that are happening in culture, like it's just sort of a, a framework for people to position themselves like, oh, well, you know what? They're doing it on that soap opera. I guess it's not that crazy or I th- I think that's not that true. strange. If you look at the, the, the idea of the interracial kiss, 
which you've got you've had on British television since 1959, but it's been in the serious play slot. When it happens in Emergency Ward 10, which is a soap opera, when there's an interracial kiss and that, suddenly there's headlines about it. It's been happening on TV. Right. But it's been happening on issue-led dramas, and it has less impact. When it happens on Star Trek, Trek, when it happens on Star Trek, then people want to see about it. I'm sure there were interracial kisses on American TV before, Mm. but not in a series, regular series program like Star Trek. So what happens is that's that's what causes the fuss, because it's bringing it to an audience that haven't tuned in to be educated. They haven't tuned in to watch a serious drama. They've tuned in to watch something they think they can rely on and know about, and suddenly they're being challenged. You mentioning Star Trek makes me think about the fact that when it first, I think it was when the pilot went out, the commander of the Starship Enterprise was a woman, and uh, they, I guess, got feedback from the network. I don't know if it was feedback from the public, and you might know, Dick. Um, And they decided, okay, we need to kind of switch that around. Maybe it's too early for a woman to be in charge. But it makes me also think about the reluctance to begin with to have women be newscasters or mm-hmm. be in a voice of authority, a position of authority on televised news programs. I think America are always better uh, at that than us. Um, Barbara Waters, people like that. I mean, even if you're going back to Lucille Ball, she she becomes a business magnate. She runs her, the, you know, the Desilu company. She is the power behind the throne. Once that happened, I think there was less um, prejudice against women running their companies. Mary Tyler Moore has the MTM, you know, and things like that. Yes. Newsreaders, you had really powerful women, Barbara Waters and people like that, you know, coming on. And, and uh, But over here, it took a lot, much longer time. You know, they were, it was very much malpreserved. Men were always the anchors. If they had women, they were usually on the spot reporters elsewhere. They re- weren't usually in the studio with them. It changes um, in the 60s, but it took a long time, I think. Was it, particularly with American TV in the 50s and 60s, with a few exceptions, was it pretty much white people making TV for other white people? Yeah, I mean, there was, because of the broader mix in the States, um, you did get, I mean, you, you did get black faces, more black faces than you did in the UK. Um, they, there was a program, Diane Carroll was in a program, Julia, where she played a nurse. Oh, yeah, in she the was late the first, 60s. She was the first female black character to front a show. Um, obviously, it was Bill Cosby on I Spy, who was co-lead with Robert Culp. That was that was considered a big thing at the time, you know. Um, but I think, uh, Leah in particular, but there was a few of them who were trying to push those barriers back in the 70s. It was a, a time for great change, you know, in the heat of the night that moved on to television. There was positive attempts to show racial, the races in a different aspect that had been shown before when people were, either they were there for issues or, or they were just invisible, they were in the background. Yeah. Suddenly they were they, they were part of the team rather than, being there for singular reasons. Well, the, the people who were opposed to TV or the ones like the, the ones who felt like they were the nation's moral guardians, were they often the people who had the most to um, lose from people watching TV? So I always think about, uh, as a kid who loved Roald Dahl books, Roald Dahl could not make it any clearer that he hates TV. So in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, maybe the most loathsome of all the kids who gets a, a golden ticket is Mike TV. And he's the kid who just watches Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And he's, you know, watching the Jimmy Cagney films on TV. And he wants to be the first kid transmitted by TV, doesn't he? And there's the little rhyme the Oompa Loompas do about throwing your TV sets away. 
Yeah, I mean, I th- as I say, I think there's always been antipathy in some quarters towards television. I think what they're rail- railing against is not so much television. It's against an obsession with television. It's against um, an addiction to television, if you like. The idea of not going out, just watching television, much the way people play you know, games now rather than do anything else and become obsessed oh, like with games. like video games. games. Yeah, yeah, I don't think people gaming. per se are against games. They're against the effect that those games have on those people that are susceptible, that have become absolutely obsessed obsessed with them, you know. What about you, Tom? Were you one of the square-eyed kids that was just glued <laughs> to the television, or were you more uh, out there with your incipient sports interests? <laughs> I think like most kids, Katie, I would have wanted to watch more TV than I was allowed to watch. So there was the babysitting TV, which was school nights when you got in from school. But then weekends, you weren't sitting there. And there, were, there wasn't much sport. There was no live football, really, in the 80s or sort of the early 80s, there were periods where the FA Cup final was the only game you'd watch. So it was more of a treat. There was definitely, I remember being lectured by my gran, the phrase, you know, you'll end up with square eyes. And I always think, I've never seen a kid with square eyes. Is this really as much of a threat as as you're making out? Where are these kids with square eyes, granny? Yeah, meanwhile, I wonder how much she was watching. She was one with the television first in your family, so... She was watching, I mean, that's why Snooker first came on, wasn't it? I think it was David Attenborough when he was controller of BBC Two, is this right, Dick, where he just needed something that was really cheap to film because you could just fill the frame with a snooker tape what you could stick on in the afternoon. Smart. And they had been showing it, as you say, in black and white. And then, of course, when they started showing it in colour, a lot of people were still watching it in black and white, which leads to that very famous line the bloke (laughs) says, you know, and he's going for the pink now. And for those of you watching in black and white, it's the one behind the green. (laughs) (laughs) This conversation reminds me that um, I had a little uh, TV desert in my childhood because we moved from God's country, a.k.a. America, to Pinkokami land. I lived in Moscow for a couple of years when I was about... 10 or 11 years old. And the television they had there, the programming wasn't the most compelling, (laughs) uh, comprised of documentaries about collective farms. (laughs) Always good for a giggle. So a lot of tractors involved. And then maybe every now and again, there'd be a broadcast of uh, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. What we we call slow TV. Slow TV, very much (laughs) slow TV. So um, thinking about it now, I realized, oh, that's when my reading really took off. There was a period when I was a tween that I was all about reading. And um, I mean, that really was the peak of my literary career. Um, Because now you just can't peel me off Twitter, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, Slightly addicted. So I have Soviet Russia to thank for how many words I have at my disposal now. (laughs) I was also... Criticised for watching too much TV, and it's sort of was, was there was some sort of warmth that I got when I eventually ended up making a living out of watching TV. Yes. <laughs> you know, it was this just, was my research. <laughs> yes, yeah. now I can justify all those hours spent wasted in front of the Perfect. box. Yeah. But I think when Billy Joel says television, just in that one thing, he he probably does mean all of this because television is all pervasive. So he, he does mean from the Saturday morning cartoon, he just says that the impact of television was everywhere. Certainly was in the 50s when and that was his, you know, that, that was when he was growing up, that's when he was most formulative years. So I'm sure that was a vital part of the same impact as all the other things. If, if you write a list song, you want to mention the things that have greatest impact on you in your life, the things that have left their mark, even if you don't understand why. So I think that's why television deserves its place in the song. Katie, we often ask at this point, in this podcast, we ask our esteemed and wise guest uh, to sum up the legacy 
of the lyric they're talking about. But I don't know, maybe it's impossible to talk about the legacy of TV because it's a... We're still in it. We're still in the TV era. Yeah. Yeah, although television, even as the word has changed now, I mean, if you had in the song now, if the song was being written now about things that are being influential, then television would mean streaming, basically. I yeah. don't, it wouldn't mean the, the box in the corner. It wouldn't mean the four or five channel world that you lived in. It would mean this vast entry of information, almost like the internet itself that's yes. coming through your thing. So television has changed. We're in a different age of television now. It's not the television that Billy Joel was talking about then. This is a completely different, new, brave new world of television. Yeah, it's, uh, television is no longer a shared experience. And it's no longer something you can get hold of. We, we grew up, I grew up in a time where basically I could watch most television. You know, I, I at least have a handle on it. I watched every comedy program that went out from probably 1965 to 1985. Every comedy program I watched because I was in the comedy. Couldn't do that now. No. You know, I couldn't, you know, I could perhaps tape one week's worth of output and spend the rest of the year watching it, you know. But So there isn't any idea that you can be on top of television no. anymore. It's very difficult to navigate these days. And it's not, a, it's not a, a cultural conversation that you can automatically have. I mean, we're each of us are our own programmers thanks to video on demand. So uh, we can maybe compare notes on a, a, a few blockbusters, whether it's Sopranos or The Crown or whatever it is, uh, Queen's Gambit. Uh, but basically, there's no more destination viewing. Yeah, it's, and that's difficult. And because we're our own programmers, um, we're entering an era of narrow casting rather than broadcasting. We haven't got the serendipity of finding out that you like something you would never have knowingly tuned into, you know, because it was just there on the night you happened to be watching it and there was no choice. And you think, oh, actually, he finds out I, I do like opera. I never realized that, you know. But you don't get those moments anymore because you can actually filter yourself and thinking, I like sci-fi, I'm going to watch sci-fi. I like comedy, I'm going to watch comedy, you know. So I was going to end by saying, Katie, that it feels like TV once unified us and it's now dividing us, but that feels far too sombre a closing to a podcast where we have a lot of knockabout fun. <laughs> I think you're trying to bring us down, but you don't really believe what you're saying. Yeah. I think it just sounds better than it, <laughs> than, than it actually is. Yeah, trying to put a handle on television is like catching lightning in a bottle. It's, it's difficult. There's too much of it. It means too much to, to too many different people. And we know it's got its place, and it's still got its place. That's the other thing. Television is as strong now as it was in the 50s, except it's a different animal now that's all and as you say because it's still going on it's difficult to sum up how do you sum up something it's like we're only halfway through the race it's difficult to know who's winning dick fitty is riding that bucking bronco like the <laughs> wild animal it is thank you so much thank you right television's katie puckrick oh you know what i'm behind billy on this one he he was not padding out the lyric you couldn't talk about the 20th century without talking about television. And I think I, I don't know, I need to talk to Billy about this man to man, but I think TV probably made him the artist that he is today. Yeah. If he hadn't included TV, then I think there would have been widespread outrage. Like we know he doesn't mention Muhammad Ali, which I'm going to have a word with him at some point. I think you should. But TV. Maybe fight with him. Maybe. I mean, he's a bit older than me, so I'll have a good chance as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you were a kid, 
what were your single favourite programmes? Like you talked about the cartoons. Because I think when all of us look back at our childhood and the nostalgia, so much of it is based around music, but so much of it is based around TV as well, isn't it? Yeah, I well, I loved Batman, but it's because I had a fascination with Adam West's kind of latex, kind of S&M looking uh, bat mask that had built-in ears and then yeah. the drawn-on eyebrows. So now the thing, these are things that I recognize as being very camp and a little kinky, and that was what got me off when I was five. Yeah. Do you ever find in life that you've had moments where you'd like to see uh, a real-life kapow written above your head in the, in, <laughs> as you're doing them? <laughs> kapow! Wham! I think I, that is how I perceive reality. So that that is not any different to my day-to-day experience, Tom. <laughs> so, Billy, you've had a blind up once again. Yes. Katie. Um, what? Strangely, our next episode is about North Korea, which feels ironic because <laughs> uh, I've never watched television in North Korea, but I would imagine that it's um, right up there with the worst TV Hold options on. in the world. Not so fast there. Not so fast. Don't write off. Don't sleep on North Korean television because North Korean television is the place where you can watch that crazed newscaster lady oh, yeah. yell out about Dear Leader. She's like she's just like a cheerleader for Dear Leader. She's that old elderly lady that just delivers the news like this. And she's just like coked up and excited. Beautiful. So North Korea next. And if you want a little bit more fire, you can follow us at Spread That Fire on Twitter and Instagram. Drop us an email if you like at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Maybe leave us a cheeky review. And let us know how the fire is warming you. Yeah. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, 
Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.